Good morning, everyone. Um, it really is a joy to hear uh, what Ted shared in those announcements that, uh, you know, what we're trying to do here is what's happening in other places. And again, our hearts are that people would find Christ and find the joy of what salvation is. And so you've got a lot of prayer the next two weeks, guys. No, no skimping and no cutting out on it, all right, because we know that we need the Lord to, to move and we cannot do it without him. Uh, well, if you are new here, I appreciate you guys coming. I'm Pastor Adam. Uh, I've been here over a year now, and it's, it's been a joy. And we've been working through a sermon series called I Have Sinned, looking at different individuals in Scripture that have cried out and confessed to God their sinfulness uh, and, and seeing their hearts of confession and repentance. And in some cases, hearing the crying out to God, but understanding that the heart is not really behind it. But in all of this, we know that Christ saves and desires to save. And so we're going to be looking at another individual today. We're going to look at the, the prophet Isaiah, how he speaks on behalf of uh, the people of uh, Jerusalem and Judah. Uh, so if you want to turn, you can open up to Isaiah chapter 59. And as you guys are opening... Um, I don't want to ruin a, a childhood understanding, uh, but we all know the chameleon, right? The chameleon is the color-changing animal that blends in with its surroundings using its camouflage. Um, but I, I don't want to ruin something that we probably assumed from kids is that the chameleon changes to blend in with its surroundings for protection. Well, that's not actually true. And what I mean is... If I put a chameleon on a, on a checkered pattern, like let's say I put it on a red and white picnic table, the chameleon is not instantly going to change the color of its skin to red and white to blend in. Uh, the chameleon is actually a natural green color that blends in with its natural environment in the kind of lush jungles uh, around the world. Uh, but it will change its color. But it doesn't change its color again just because it's trying to, to seek protection. The chameleon actually will change its color uh, as a result of its mood or, or its body temperature. So if it starts getting too hot or too cold, its body will start changing color. Uh, if it starts to get angry or it gets fearful, it'll change its color. If it's looking to, to mate, a chameleon will change its color based off of that. And the, the way that it happens is it does it by actually expanding or shrinking its skin. So right under the surface of its skin, it has what's these salt crystals, and they're very, very microscopic. And when the light hits those salt crystals in the chameleon, it gives it its natural green color. But, but again, if it, if it gets really hot and it starts to expand its skin... Well, what happens is that as the light now hits those salt crystals, it refracts in a different way, causing its skin to have a different color. So, so that's typically what happens. And so the chameleon, like many of God's creatures, are, are a fascinating animal. Uh, and we will often use that word to describe people, right? When people attempt to, to change or blend into their surroundings, uh, people attempt to, to fit into a situation that's going to be beneficial for them, we say that those people are like a chameleon. And oftentimes when we use it, it's really not a positive connotation. We really say it in a manner that 
understands that these people are doing things in a manner that's really not good or, or helpful. Well, as we look at the prophet Isaiah today, he's going to talk about the people of Israel, uh, and he's going to provide some truth about how they're sinful individuals and what lies ahead. And he speaks about them in a manner like they're chameleons, that they are just people that are adapting to their situation simply for the sake of getting what it is that they want out of God. And it just goes just below the surface of their skin. It doesn't really get to the core and to the heart of what needs to change. So we have the split kingdoms. We have the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, they've been destroyed at this point. They're taken into captivity. Judah, the southern kingdom, is going to eventually be taken into captivity. Isaiah is the final prophet speaking to these kings of Judah, saying, destruction is coming. Bad things are going to happen. You need to change. You need to change your behaviors. You need to change your attitudes. You need to change your heart. And that's the bad news. But the good news is that Isaiah also prophesies about the promises and faithfulness of God. That though judgment is coming, there is also a hope that lies in all of this. And if we were to read all of the book of Isaiah, most of the first 39 chapters are about judgment. Uh, and then the final portions up to chapter 66 is where we see these prophecies and these promises come out. So, so Isaiah is a man of judgment, but he is also a man of hope. And that is intricately woven all throughout the book as we, as we go through. And even as we go through chapters 57, 58, and 59 today, we're going to see that as well. So chapter 57, again, Israel has done wrong, and Isaiah is now continuing to confront them. So Isaiah chapter 57, starting in verse 1, it says, The righteous perish, and no one ponders it in his heart. Devout men are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in its death. But you, come here, you sons of sorcerers, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. Whom are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and stick out your tongue? Are you not a brood of rebels, the offspring of liars? You burn with lust among the oaks, and under every spreading tree you sacrifice your children in the ravines. The idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion. They, they are your lot. Yes, to them who have poured out drink offerings and offer grain offerings in the light of these things, should I relent? You have made your bed on a high and lofty hill, and you went to offer your sacrifices. Behind your doors and your doorposts you have put your pagan symbols. Forsaking me, you have uncovered your bed. You have climbed into it and opened it wide. You have made a pact with those whose beds you love. You look on their nakedness. You went to Molech with olive oil and increased your perfumes. You sent your ambassadors far away. You have descended to the grave itself. You were wearied by all of your ways. You, have, you, you would not say it is hopeless. You have found renewal of your strength, and so you do not faint. Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have been false to me, and have neither remembered me nor pondered this in your hearts? It is not because I have been long silent that you do not fear me. I will expose your righteousness and your works, and they will not benefit you. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all of them away. A mere breath will blow them away. But the man who makes his refuge will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. So he's putting out, he says, look, you guys have done wrong. You violated, you disobeyed the commands of God. Um, I'm the one who brought you out of Egyptian slavery. I have protected you. 
but yet you continue to reject me as your God. And I like how one commentator spoke of it. He went through and he said there was an indifference, an immorality, an idolatry. It was insatiable. And as a result, you are inexcusable for what you have done. So if we just quickly walk through that again, verses 1 and 2, we see the indifference of what is happening. He, he says, the righteous perish and no one ponders it in his hearts. He's like, look, I'm punishing bad people and you don't care. You don't even understand that I protect the good and I punish the evil. You are indifferent to what's happening around you. Verses 3 and 5. He, he talks about the, the sorcerers and the adulterers and the prostitutes. And, and, and all throughout Scripture, we see this relationship uh, uh, terminology. That when God speaks about us going wayward, we are like the prostitute, giving ourselves into a relationship that is not good. You take the most intimate of all relationships and you turn them over to someone else. And then to make matters worse, you go and you start sacrificing your children. You live in your immorality. In verses 6 to 80, he talks about these idols, that these are just man-made statues that you worship. You put them together and then you bow down, not realizing that you have created these idols. Thinking that somehow offering sacrifices to them are going to save you. And then verses 9 and 10, you're insatiable. You can't get enough to satisfy your evil. You, you, you go out far and wide. You go down to the grave. You weary yourself out chasing after all of this stuff. And God says, you know what? You don't have an excuse. I haven't been silent about it. I've spoken to you. And I will expose what you have done. I will expose your unrighteousness and I will expose your works. And when you cry out for help, you know what I'm going to tell you? Go to your idols. Let them save you. Because that's what you wanted all along. So Isaiah is, is communicating this thing of judgment. But now he brings hope back into it. Verse 14. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For what this is the, the high and lofty one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I will live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lonely and to revive the heart of the contrite, I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry. For then the spirit of the man would grow faint before me, the breath of man that I have created." I was enraged by his sinful greed. I punished him and hid my face in anger. Yet he kept on his willful ways. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will guide him and restore him and comfort him, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Peace, peace to those far or near, says the Lord. I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up in mire and muck. There is no peace says my God to the wicked. So again, judgment and hope. And really, this is, this is the message of all of the prophets. That I'm speaking the words of God, letting you know how you've gone wayward, but I'm also calling you back to the path of the Lord. And if you would get rid of all of those obstacles that stand in your way, 
If you get rid of those idols and all of the sin, if, if you get rid of them, I will heal you. I will restore you. I will, I will bring you back. But you need a contrite, you need a lowly heart that desires me. And when you do that, praise will come from your lips and peace will surround you. But if not, well, you will perish in your wickedness. And this is, again, this, is, this idea is all throughout Scripture. It's very straightforward. If we follow and honor the Lord, we are blessed and we find joy and we are at peace. But God tells us constantly in his word, if you wander away from me, if you go chasing after something else that you think can save you, or chasing after your, your own lifestyle, it's only going to bring trouble and judgment upon you. And that wrath is going to stand against you. But if you are willing to repent, if you are willing to be faithful to God, then God will save you. So then God comes back to judgment now, chapter 58, verse 1. He says to Isaiah, he says, say this to the people. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. He says, Isaiah, I need you to, I need you to shout this. I need you to trumpet this idea. Because everything that I just said in chapter 57 about how they've wandered, but how, how there's true repentance and confession and forgiveness, they don't understand it, Isaiah. So I need you to be as loud as you can to them. I need you to let them understand their sinfulness. Because they are confused as to what's going on. So now verse 2, he continues to help explain where this confusion lies. It says, For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its gods. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near to them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit all of your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast that I have chosen? Only a day for man to humble himself? It is only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes. Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting that I chosen, to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? It is not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor with wander with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe him and to, to not turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call on the Lord, and he will answer. And you will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, the pointing of fingers and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry, satisfy the needs of the oppressed, 
Then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you. He will satisfy you with needs of a sun-scorched earth land. He will strengthen your, fa- your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will rise from the age-old foundations. You will be called repair the broken walls and restore the streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight in the Lord's day, a holy day, honorable, if you honor by not going your own way and not doing as you please, speaking idle words, then you will find joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to rise in the heights of the land to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. He says, Isaiah, tell the people of Judah, If they stop oppressing, if they stop satisfying their own needs, if they stop the injustice, then the light will come out of the darkness in which they live. They will be a well-watered garden whose springs never fail. Judah, if you do what I'm asking you to do, you will thrive and you will prosper. You will bloom and blossom. You will bear good fruit. You will find joy and triumph, and you will feast on my inheritance if you do what I'm calling you to do. But Judah's confused. Judah's really confused. God, what are you talking about? God, we've done what you've asked us to do. I don't understand. Quite frankly, God, I think you're the problem here. Again, go go back to verse 2. You, you seem eager to know my ways. You, you act as if you're a nation that does right. Like, God, we've been doing right this whole time. I don't understand the problem. Verse 3. We fasted. We've humbled ourselves. God, we've come before you. But you don't seem to recognize what we are doing. God, it's not our fault. You clearly are the problem in this. You clearly are not paying attention to what we've been doing. We have been confessing and we have been repenting to you, God. We have humbled ourselves. And so they're confused. And God says, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just stop right there, Judah. That's not what's going on. See, you go out and you fast and you think that's good enough and it counts. Right? Five, five and six, that's what he says. Is, is this the kind of fast that I want? Only a day for a man to humble himself? This is, this is not the kind of fasting that I'm asking for. You know, if we were to go back to Isaiah chapter 1, we see something similar in verses 11 to 13. He says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, of fat, of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats, because when you appear before me, who has asked me of this that is trampling my courts? Stop bringing your meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. You know, you you show up one day and you fast and you think it's good enough. You think your rituals that you perform are good enough. You, 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 You confess you sacrifice, you put on the sackcloth, you, you, you douse yourself in the ash, and you cry out, God, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, and you think that is good enough for me. 
No, what I want, what I want from you is I want you to humble yourselves to the point that you see your sins and your injustice and you change them. That you sit there lavishly, dining at your table, filled with all kinds of food, and there are people sitting outside starving to death. You amass all of these riches and wealth and you sit in this opulent house and you have all these fancy clothes. And there's your worker who was sweating and toiling for you who can barely survive on the money that you pay them. That's what I want. I want you to change that kind of behavior and actions. I don't want to fast. I don't want to, I don't want to sacrifice anymore because it's all worthless to me. If you're willing to do righteousness, then I will show up before you. Isaiah is not done. He's going to continue his assault on the people. 1 to 15 of chapter 59. It says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face so that he will not hear. Your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and speak lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves. Their deeds are evil, and acts of violence are in their hands." Their feet rush into sin and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are evil. Ruin and destruction mark their ways. The way of peace they don't know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned in the crooked roads. And no one who walks will know peace. So justice is far from us. And righteousness does not reach us. We look for light but all is dark and brightness but we walk in the deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. At midday, we stumble a visage twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like a bear. We moan mournfully like doves. We, we look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, it is far from you. Our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord turning our backs on our God, fermenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has, humbled in the, has stumbled in the streets and honesty cannot injure. Truth is nowhere to be found and whoever shuns evil becomes prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He says, guys, you... you your sins have separated you from God. You, you're, you're arguing that God's arm is too short to save you. You're arguing that God is not hearing your cries, that, that he's, he's deaf or like some old man. No, this is your fault. This is your hands are stained with blood. You carry your guilt around. And you give birth to evil. You lay eggs of vipers and spin cobwebs. You try to trap people 
And all you do is continue to perpetuate another cycle of evil. More and more and more evil. That is who you are. So you're not going to find righteousness. And there's a reason why you're, you're groping around like a blind man, trying to feel along the walls where he's at. And you're stumbling because there is no truth in you. Your sins testify against you. And so Judah, all you have done is offered a shallow and surface level atonement for your sins. Now wait, let me, let me rephrase that. That's what we do. We offer a shallow atonement to God for our sins. See, we're, we're the very same people. We, we cry out to God in our times of distress, neglecting God in times of our blessing and goodness, and we cry out to him going, God, God, I need you in this very moment. I need you to pay my bills. I need you to get me this. I need you to do this for me. And so what do we do? We go, I'm going to get right with God. I'm, I'm going to confess my sin. God, I'm a sinner. And we go, we go, I'm going to have my spiritual retreat. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go up to my cabin that sits right on the lake. And I'm going to take my towel and I'm going to lay it out on the dock right beside the clear water. And I'm going to lacquer up in my sunscreen. And I'm going to have my drinks and put in my, eye, my, my, my ear pods. And then I'm going to tell God I'm sorry. And then I'm just going to get myself a really good tan. We cry out, God, I'm a sinner. God, I'm a sinner. I have wronged you. And we go outside and we look at the stars and, and the heavens and we go, God, you're magnificent. I'm so sorry. I got to go back inside and finish my movie. See, we're people that believe that our effectual works can save us. That is who we are as sinners. And that really God should be okay with that. That we, we just offer these things up and God should be, should be all right. That, that if I just offer some, some token gesture of sorrow and God sees it, hey God, I'm going to confess, I'm going to fast, I'm going to repent. Are you watching that if God just sees it, he's, he's some sort of ceremonial figurehead that as soon as he sees us do it, he waves his hand and he goes, now you are forgiven, thank you. That's what we think we can do with God. But again, we are shallow sinners and our confession and repentance only goes just below the surface like a chameleon. That you and I will change how we are before God when we need it to benefit us the most. And what God is saying is, I don't want that. I want a true heart of confession. Because see, here's the thing. God's arm is not too short to save. And it's not that God doesn't hear us. The problem is that God has chosen to not answer us. Because all I'm trying to do is save myself. And what I mean when I say save myself, 
God, give me lots of money. Give me a great job. Give me a wonderful family. Give me the perfect life, a big car, a big house, fill my bank account. Let me never come across problems, God. That's, that's what I want you to answer, God. And that's all we work for. We work for ways to save ourselves. And so what are we left with? Verse 14, righteousness stands at a distance. Because we are not looking for ultimate spiritual salvation. We're just looking for it right here and right now. But I don't want to end this message with judgment. That is true. And if we live in that, God will judge us and we will bear the wrath. But remember what I said. The book of Isaiah is about judgment and hope. And so here's how he finishes off chapter 59. Because God's desire is for all men to be saved. That's what it says, 1 Timothy 2.4. John 3.16, God died for the world. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on his garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak, according to what they have done. And so he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes, and he will repay the islands their due. From the west men will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants from the time on and forever, says the Lord. God looks out and he says, guys, you're all looking for a savior. You're all trying to save yourselves. And you're doing all of these little acts that you think are going to do it. But I am appalled because none of you can save you. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take it upon myself to save you. And so what does God do? He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to be that sacrifice that gets to the core of who we are. That the shedding of his blood will offer us forgiveness. And he says, that is my salvation. And if you want to ignore who Jesus is, if you want to ignore your sins, then I will repay you for the evil that you have done and I will treat you as my enemy. But God says, if you are willing to embrace Christ, if you are willing to have a true heart of confession and repentance, then my arm will reach out to you and will embrace you in my kingdom. And that redemption and my spirit will rest upon you and you will have peace. But if we believe that some sort of shallow act of penance pageantry is going to do it, we are in for a rude awakening. Because God doesn't answer those prayers. God doesn't answer ritualistic deeds and traditions. That's not what God cares about. God cares about what is in your heart. And if you have a heart for him. 
But if we keep going about thinking that we can convince God that, that we can somehow show him that we're sincere, he's not going to do anything. That if we are just going through the motions, God is going to remain motionless. But if we understand who Christ is and what Christ has done, if we understand that he went to the cross to save us, if we understand that salvation needs to be planted deep in the core of who we are and not just under the surface of our skin, then you and I will be saved and we will be blessed. And as a result, praise will come from our lips. Because God is a good God that desires all men to be saved. And he has made a way for us through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we are, we just keep looking at all these sinners. And Lord, we can, we can so easily attach ourselves to any one of these. We can so easily think that emotional and and sporadic confessions are good enough. And don't get me wrong, God, it begins with those pieces. But God, if we are not willing to change our lives and submit to your will and truly humble ourselves to honor you and to glorify with our actions and our deeds and our lips, then God, you're going you're gonna to see that. And you don't want any part of that. So I pray for conviction, including myself, God, where are those meager acts that I put before you with the, the question that follows, is this good enough for you? But instead that I come before you realizing I'm never good enough, Father. But praise and honor be to you that you have sent your son who has died and shed his blood that has covered and washed over me. And it is that, Father, it is in that understanding that I am your child. Amen.